We are now talking about the tribulation. So what are some of the characteristics of the seven-year tribulation? Bad stuff. Bad stuff, right? You guys know about the purpose of the tribulation? Like God's wrath. God's wrath, okay. So God's wrath. I'm assuming on some level would also be to um, bring salvation to the, the number of Israelites. Yeah. So kind of the, at the end will be kind of the salvation of, of Israel and a whole lot of other people too. Okay. And so we get this from Daniel, but it's also alluded to very strongly in Revelation chapter 11. So you kind of see in this doctrine of the end times, this kind of plays a very crucial role. Okay, so I kind of, when I kind of thought about how to lay out this study, I wanted to start off with the, the tribulation and what that means. And now we're going to get to the, um, the rapture, right? This is a very interesting doctrine. And I thought what we would do is read some of the passages that deal with it first, right? So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll read um, 1550 through 52. Do I have a volunteer to read that? 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 52. Okay, hey, go ahead. Uh, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Okay. So this is a pretty interesting passage. Uh, let's see. So, um... A couple of key terms here, right? He says, I'm going to tell you a mystery, okay? Now, a mystery, like when we hear about a mystery, I mean, what does a mystery mean? Nobody knows. Nobody knows until it's disclosed in the future, right? So he's saying, I'm going to tell you a mystery. I'm going to tell you something that is kind of new information for you. <coughs> Now, what he says is, the mystery, what's the content of the mystery? According to the passage. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all sleep. But what, does sleep, what do you think he means by sleep? Death. Death, right? So there's kind of two categories of people, right? There is the dead, right? And we'll say in Christ, right? You have the dead in Christ, and then you have those who are alive, and we're doing physically, not metaphorically. You have those who are alive in Christ, right? <coughs> so not everybody sleeps. Now, what else? If we kind of go on, right? Not everyone is going to sleep. You have the dead and the alive. Now, he also says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, right? 
So the question is, like, there was always a category in the Old Testament for the dead <coughs> saints to be resurrected. Okay, that's taught in Daniel chapter 12, for instance, that all of the righteous ones will come to life. The question is, what about those who are alive? Right? Why is it that people have to be resurrected to be in the presence of the Lord ultimately? Why is it that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven? Because right now we're in a fallen state. Yeah, we're in a fallen state, right? There has to be a glorification, a transformation <coughs> of the soul as well as the body. And so he's saying that with the dead, we see that with the resurrection, right? The soul is in heaven. The dead are kind of, you know, they, they're reunited with their glorified bodies. But what about those who are alive at the time? What he says is that when the Lord comes back, we'll experience this glorification, kind of a resurrection without death. Does that make sense? So that's the mystery, that those who are alive in Christ at the coming will experience a transformation at the coming of the Lord. Okay, any questions about that? And this is new information. So Paul kind of builds on this a little bit later on when we go to 1 Thessalonians. And we got 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Volunteer to read that. Abe, you got that? Go for it. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, mm -hmm. and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Okay, so remember how there's two groups of people, right? There's those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ, right? So when the Lord comes back, what happens to the dead in Christ? They rise first. They rise, yeah. What about those who are alive? They got caught up. And, and where do they meet the Lord? In the air. In the air. Right, so there's this idea that when, you know, Jesus is coming... So the last trumpet, right, Jesus, he comes back. Ah, that's much better. So he's coming back, and this is kind of the earth, and we'll say those who are dead in Christ, they will come, right? And then those who are alive will also come, and they'll meet the Lord in the air. And then we will always be together with the Lord, right? So there's a sense where he comes back, gathers his people, and then he returns to heaven. Or at least he... He pulls us out only to be brought down again. <clears throat> so the question is the timing of this, right? The rapture teaches basically that when Christ comes back, those alive in Christ will go up and meet him. Now, some people will say they go up to meet him and then they come right back down. Okay? And... Um, 
then others try to figure out, well, is there, is there a gap here, and how long is the gap? So what people try to do is they try to sync up the rapture with the seven-year <coughs> tribulation. Okay? So remember, the tribulation is a promised time that there's going to be seven years of wrath. It's predicted in Daniel. That's reaffirmed in Revelation. Uh, the time of birth pangs, a time of increasing judgments. And so the question is, when does the rapture take place? And really, um, you know, there's two views here, right? Well, there's a bunch of views, right? Some people would say that the rapture takes place at, not even at the beginning, but sometime before, right? So the, okay, the rapture takes place here, right? The, what's called pre-tribunational rapture. Some people will say it takes place at the halfway point, and then other people will say it takes place at some point in the second half, where you have judgments that are explicitly the wrath of God, and then some people would say it takes place here is called the post-tribulational rapture. Does that make sense? So we got pre-trib, mid-trib, it's called pre-rap, and that's post-trib. Now, I will argue, and keep in mind, this is one of my 85% doctrines. Like, I'm about 85% sure that it's going to be pre-trib. But I could be persuaded if we got a seven-year peace treaty with Israel a clear person of the Antichrist, you know, is up there that, okay, maybe I got that one wrong, okay? So I'm going to give you my reasons for why I think about, I think it might be a pre-trib um, rapture. Uh, why here and not here, which, and I think these are probably the two, the two major views. Uh, number one would be some of the passages in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 says, And wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But one thing about wrath, like a lot of times I think when you read wrath, you think he's probably talking about hell, correct? But in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, he talks about the day of the Lord. While people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon the pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I think that kind of tilts the favor towards maybe a seven-year period of God's wrath. And so the idea is that the church is not destined for God's wrath. Now, some people will ask, well, aren't people saved during the tribulation? And the answer is yes. People will be saved during the tribulation. Jews will be saved. Uh, many Gentiles will be saved. But one thing um, to know is that right now we're in what's called the church age. Right? God is building a new work where you have Jews and Gentiles both united under Christ who are forming this new entity where he seeks to reach the world through the church, not necessarily through Israel. Israel, even though they're God's chosen people, are kind of, they're cursed right now because of their unbelief. And the purpose of the tribulation is to bring them back into compliance. And so the, the rapture is a promise to the church, 
And it's kind of a privilege, it's kind of like a gift given to the church, where one of the advantages of becoming a Christian, being part of the church, is you're taken out of this period of wrath here. Yeah? I was going to say, um, the, the Spanish version of rapture is raptar, uh-huh. which means to kidnap. Yeah. So essentially we're being kidnapped. Yeah, <laughs> and that's literally what it means, yeah, in the Latin too. It means to snatch, to take away. So that's kind of the idea, is the church is rescued from this period of judgment, Okay, so kind of speaking of that, there's another promise given to um, uh, a church in Revelation, uh, Church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10. Somebody want to read that for me? It's in your study, so you can find it quickly. Martin, go for it. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the world to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so the key is um, is to keep them from the hour of testing. Not within the hour of testing, but from the hour of testing. And so there's some debate about, is this an external protection? External protection or internal? And what internal means is they are preserved in the midst of all the judgments. Okay, so like um, Israel, when they were in Egypt, was preserved while they were in the midst of Egypt when all those judgments were taking place. External is they're saved by being removed from the possibility of uh, the judgment. And so... One of the things to kind of think about as we kind of make this decision is uh, John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So keep them from is to be removed from, right? Where it's, uh, I'm actually, let me look at this again. Yeah, he prays for that they're, they're outside the reach of Satan, that they are removed from wrath, removed from tribulation. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not being clear right now. Would you mind rereading that verse real quick? Yeah. So Jesus promises the Church of Philadelphia that he will keep them from the hour of testing. The preposition from implies an external protection. For instance, when Jesus asked in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays the disciples will be kept out of reach of Satan. In the case of Revelation 3.10, the church is kept out of reach of the tribulation via pre-tribulational rapture. If, as some critics imply, this speaks of preserving the church during the judgments of the tribulation, a better term would be keep you from keep you in the midst of the hour of testing. Jesus promises external, not internal preservation. And, again, there's going to be some people who will be some Christians who will be in the tribulation, and many of them are going to die and be martyred, right? So it would be very difficult to say that he's going to keep them in the midst of the hour of tribulation when many of them will be martyred. I think probably a better understanding would be they'd be removed from it entirely. How do we juxtapose that with Jesus specifically saying, I do not ask you take them out of the world? So he's specifically saying not take them out from the world. Yeah, that'd be but from the church. But wouldn't a rapture mean taking us out of the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's for the church until the time. That is talking about his disciples who are part of the church, that they're to stay in the world yeah. until he removes them at his 
Until okay. Yeah. Until it's it seems time. like the the John. The reason I think we're looking at John is to get a sense for what that from. Yeah. Means he's not really alluding to the end times here. Okay. Yeah. Whereas in the other passages, yeah, the context is the end times. Yeah. And so we're getting that sense of is it internal, external from that John passage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're gonna say something. Um, when I was reading about the 144,000, which are a lot of people say are the Jewish people, they're they're sealed through that. So maybe that would be the preservation. But the church is re is not there; it's removed because yeah. so many are going to be martyred during that yeah. time. Who comes to the Lord? Yeah. And in the Old Testament, um, it kind of reminds me of Enoch, who walked with God, and then he was not. Would would you say that would be like kind of like a rapture situation or a little different? Yeah, I I would be I would look at it that maybe a little bit different. I mean, it sounds appealing. It's the same concept where he's taken up into heaven, so. <laughs> That's part of the theological imagination of God at the time. But I'd have a hard time reconciling that with the mystery element. Um, where mystery is something new you know, to be expected for the community of God's people. So that's why I'm a little bit... Maybe the mystery is the scale that we can't imagine. Imagine all the people being raised. Yeah, and I think that there's a tight connection with the return of Christ and the translation of the living in Christ. Into a resurrected a body, even though they're not resurrected. Yeah. And then are, are Enoch and Elijah are the two people who've never, I mean, besides Jesus, are the two humans who are not God, who have not died yet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, are, they, are they the two who are supposedly going to come back before? It's hard to say. Okay. Yeah, the two prophets who are going like, to yeah. come back down, and then they're going to die, and then they get raised from Maybe. Okay. I don't know. I just wondering if that was is that is like am I right that that's like a common theory? Yeah, some people say Moses, Moses and Elijah because they're both present at the Transfiguration, and there's some Old Testament references that that might have been the case. So I, yeah, it's hard to tell. Okay. I think a lot of these prophecies are, like, we'll we'll clearly understand it when we see it, and I think we know enough to know when it's not happening. And we'll know enough to know when it's definitely happening. So I have an open mind with how some of these things are, are applied. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it will. Yeah, what's the verse says we see through a glass darkly? Yeah, that'd be 1 Corinthians 13, mm -hmm. right? Also the um, imminency of the rapture, though, that seems to be mm -hmm. supporting for the before the tribulation. Yeah, and that, that's my strongest argument. So I'm giving you, like, descending, well, yeah. From the weakest to the strongest, okay? So really, the reason, the number one reason why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture is that the, the judgments promised in the tribulation are going to be clear, evident, and obvious. And usually when I argue for it, I ask people in, um, you know, people who might disagree with my position. It's like, so when God judged Egypt, did the water turn into a blood-like substance? It may not have been a positive, right? It might have been a deep crimson, something else. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's enough for them to say blood. How literally do you take the judgments in Exodus? Pretty literally, right? And when, when you look at the judgments of Revelation, notice that there's some strong parallels between the judgments in Egypt, right, and the judgments that are on the whole world. 
So I, I'll ask, so if we take those judgments literally, why don't we take these ones in Revelation literally? Because if you believe in a post-tribulational rapture, you would have to say that we might be experiencing the tribulation right now. And one of the classic lines is, some of the believers in China might be experiencing the tribulation right now. Now, when you look at uh, some of the different sets of judgments, you have, I think it's the, the judgments, it's the, uh, the seals, then the trumpets, and then the bowls. Okay, now the sealed judgments are famine, war, kind of a peace treaty, earthquake. <coughs> See, a lot of those, you might be able to make a case. You can make a, maybe a decent case that maybe it's happening right now, and that might open up to maybe a pre- or I'm sorry, mid-trip rapture. But when you look at the scale of like blood, demon armies, locust hordes, um, I think it'd be pretty clear and obvious when that's actually taking place. So if you know that there's a seven-year tribulation, and if you believe that the Lord can come back at any point in time, it would make sense that it would precede this seven-year clock. Or it can happen at any time. Does that make sense? Doesn't First Corinthians fifteen fifty one though say that as soon as the trump the last trumpet sounds, then we'll be taken up? Yeah, and that's not necessarily the trumpet judgment per se, but kind of the final trumpet, the final rally is like in an army they would muster people. Like they didn't have comms, right? They played the trumpets and kind of different cadences and everything to let the army know what to do. Well, that's the final trumpet, that's the one that summons everybody up to. Well, final trumpet, I'm not even say for this age or whatever it is, but it's it's the summoning for us. If that makes sense. So it's not saying the last trumpet ever blown, but the last of this epic. So that's kind of my uh, my understanding is if the Lord come back any moment and we know it's gonna be seven years of tribulation, and if we know that the judgments are gonna be clear and obvious to the whole wide world, it'd be very difficult to believe in an in a uh, post-tribulational rapture, if you take the judgments of Revelation literally, yeah. Is there a difference between the seven-year tribulation and the seven years of wrath of God? Like, well, some people I would say that this whole thing is a wrath of God. Other people would say that the wrath might start here or here, and that's why they would go mid-trib or pre-wrath. They would say the church, the promise for the church not to experience God's wrath still stands. It's just when does that take place? You think that trumpet call is, is something we'll hear or an earth or a heavenly announcement? I think we'll hear it. I'm not sure if everybody else does. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say. I mean, again, there's a certain amount of mystery to all this. But, I mean, why do you like pastorally, right? Some people will say, well, the reason why we need to teach, if we don't know, let's teach post-trib so that we're all prepared for suffering. Other people would say, well, we teach the mid-trib so that we're ready at any moment in time, right, to be translated into heaven. But I think a lot of it is the, the hermeneutics of this, right? How, how literally do we expect the tribulation to be fulfilled? Yeah, and I think too, it's a good um, point to to realize that 
even pre pre tribulation rapture, um, believers are going to suffer. Yeah, I mean you're going to suffer persecution. Um, the degree and the magnitude is drastically different in terms of the type of what what it's, what that suffering is going to be like on yeah. a global scale. Yeah, uh, there's a tremendous amount of suffering that believers have endured every age of history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things will go from bad to worse. And then it gets really, really bad during this time. So, yeah, any questions about that? So if, sorry, yeah, I go ahead. you have one more. I'm no, sorry, go for I'm it. not asking things. Um, so if, if we're taken up before, mm-hmm. um, and then throughout this time of God's wrath, there is salvation that happens, mm-hmm. is it like, hey, my cousin believed, and he just disappeared out of nowhere, like, throughout this time? Or is it nope. at some point, like, on, this, on the return, everybody else who believed during this time is then gathered up? Yeah, that's a good question. So, there will be believers during this time. There's going to be Jewish evangelists during this time. At the end of time, all Israel will be saved, and they'll be saved as they look upon him who they have pierced. And that will be the time of contrition. And so, many people are going to be martyred during this time. Right? And then you kind of get into the timing of like all the different resurrections, which I think we'll get into uh, in the future. I think a lot of these people who are kind of martyred here will probably be resurrected at the end of the millennium, which we'll talk about in a, in a little bit. But yeah, they're not going to be raptured every time they die. Right? It's going to be, they're going to be kind of, they'll all be saved up for the future. Hmm. You know, one thing that people say is like, this just seems, why can't God just do it all at once, right? That just seems simpler if God were to do it all at once. Now, there's a major problem with that. How many Advents of Christ are there? There's two, right? He came 2,000 years ago, and he's going to come again, right? He didn't do it all at once. And really, that um, understanding that happens happened that it has to happen all at once, where did that lead many of the people of Israel? Right, they weren't able to see some of the prophecies that are side by side, right? And so there's, there's many cases, like um, there's one passage in Zechariah where there's, I can't find it, because I just, yeah, I'll just summarize it, maybe one of you can find it, where there's a clear prophecy to the birth of the Messiah right next to he's going to reign forever and ever, right? One verse apart. Um, so some of these prophecies talk about the first coming, right? And then some of them talk about the second coming. And it's important to kind of distinguish between the two. So when we look at the future, um, there is some prophecies that are going to be talking about this time here. But then you have another teaching called the Millennium. Okay, so let's go to um, the Millennium. So there's robust disagreement on this about a future thousand year reign. And I'll kind of break down the positions and we'll kind of analyze them. 
But let's read um, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 10. Do you have a reader who wants to take that one on? Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Ashton. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather gather them. Sorry. Sorry, Gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Mm-hmm. All right, so I have a, kind of a summary here on, on page 9. I have charts to kind of simplify what this means. So there are four major views on this topic. Okay? And, and the question is, right, you kind of have an order here of... <clears throat> It seems like the, you know, Christ returns. You see that there's one resurrection. Right? And when he returns, you know, right, Satan is bound. Right? Then you have resurrection number one. A thousand years. And then... Resurrection number two. Okay, so that's kind of the teaching of that. And the, in the immediate context, uh, you look at Revelation chapter 19. That's also, that talks about the return of Christ, where you see a rider on the white horse, and he basically slaughters all of his enemies. And he puts the, the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire forever. Okay? Now, what some people do is um, they have maybe a different take of Revelation. Like when we look at Revelation, by and large, with some exceptions, Revelation, all the judgments are sequential in nature. Okay? So you go from one set of judgments to the next set of judgments to the next set of judgments. Now, there are some interludes. And then you kind of continue on where you see you know, Christ returns in chapter 19, and then more stuff is happening in 20, and 21, and 22. They're all going sequentially. Um, some people take a different look of Revelation. It's called the recapitulation view, where it's basically a retelling of the same event in different ways from different angles. 
And so they would say that Revelation chapter 19 is one snapshot of the return of Christ. And then Revelation chapter 20 is another snapshot on the return of Christ. And so they're basically telling the same story in different ways. Okay? That's how they would understand it. And they would say that, the, um, that there really is no millennium, right? That's just talking about a very long period of time. Uh, if there is a millennium, we're kind of in it right now. And they would say that this first resurrection is maybe a, a spiritual resurrection. It's a resurrection that takes place uh, when people come to faith during this time. And all believers experience this first resurrection. And then at the end of the age, there will be a physical resurrection where everybody will be resurrected at that time. They'd also say that Satan is bound. So the millennium, they said the millennium is happening kind of right now. Okay? It's happening right now. Satan's bound. We're experiencing the first resurrection as we speak. Every time somebody comes to Christ, there's a spiritual resurrection. There's going to be a one at the end of the age. And I think the appeal to this is um, it simplifies all the end times into one climactic singular event that when Christ comes back, we'll have the new heavens and the new earth. Everything will be as it should be. So tomorrow might be what we call the eternal state. Tomorrow could be the time when all is set right, Christ reigns, and there's no future drama. Okay? So um, you can see that, so it allows for the return of Christ, but there's some weaknesses here, okay? One of the weaknesses is Satan being bound, right? Do you think Satan's bound? Right, you guys are kind of shaking your head. Are there any Bible passages to support that? Yeah. First uh, Peter, he piles around like a roaring lion. Yeah, seeking someone to devour. <coughs> That's an act. Yeah. Pretty active, I would say. Yeah, go ahead. I think even the fact that he uh, he was free to tempt Jesus, and then... Well, they say he was bound, when Jesus died on the cross, he was, like, he's bound from the resurrection on. The Bible doesn't say that, so... Yeah. Well, this is prowls around like a roaring lion, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And you even look at the language here. I mean, when they're talking about bound, um, then I saw the angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand, the keys to a bottomless pit and a great chain. And they seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit and shut and sealed it over him that it might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, like, when he's bound, I mean, it's like, you know, kind of a tight, effective prison, right? Where he, it, his, his power, I wouldn't say, is just limited. It's like his number one weapon is deceit, right? <laughs> so that would be one problem with it. The other one is, how do you make this resurrection one spiritual and this one physical? Whenever you see resurrection, it is always a physical resurrection. 
Okay? When you start spiritualizing this term resurrection, I think you get into all kinds of danger. You can spiritualize a lot of things. Does that make sense? But that's why amillennialism, in, in my opinion, good brothers hold it, but I would disagree with them on, on those two grounds. So postmillennialism is somewhat similar to it. They would say that there is an actual millennium, but it's happening right now. That life is improving, it's getting better. You guys ever heard of Theonomists? Um, those are, are reconstruction, Christian reconstructionists. They're, they're people who want to build an actual Christian society. And they believe that we are working towards that end. We're in the millennium. We're making things happen. Things are getting better. Everything is under Christ's rule and authority right now. Well, Isn't that the Catholic Church? Do they believe, are they more post-millennial? Uh, you know, I, that, that's a good question. I, I think they're more amill mm-hmm. because of the, the heritage with Augustine. Um, but a lot of Presbyterians are it, it, liberal Christianity is mainly post mill because they believe that we're making this world a better place. All of, oh, sorry, all of them. I'll go back to you. Will go ahead. All of, um, I was going to ask: Are Jehovah's Witnesses post mill? No, they're good, they're pre mill. Pre mill. Yeah. So they believe in a future coming of Christ and the future reign of Christ. Well, you know, I wouldn't even put them in any of these categories because they're, they believe the 144,000 are Jehovah Witnesses who are going to reign in the future. So, yeah, they have all kinds of issues. So, just, yeah, that's the least of their problems, actually. We'll go ahead. Yeah, in the charismatic circles coming out of that, um, there's a the new apostolic reformation in the Seven Mountains where the church is actually going to usher in Christ's second coming if there's enough revival and if they do enough to transform society. Yeah, yeah that'd be kind of consistent with it. Most charismatics are dispensational pre-mill, interestingly enough. Um, so again, same problem. The two different resurrections, Satan being bound. And, and you know the biblical testimony is things are getting worse. <clears throat> things will go from bad to worse. Uh, is, there's nothing about things really improving and getting better. And then you get into what's called historic premillennialism. Um, according to this perspective, the present age will continue until the time of the Great Tribulation. At the end of the Tribulation, which is the conclusion of the Church Age, Christ will return and raise all believers from the dead, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. After that period of time, Satan will emerge from his millennium-long prison, and join forces with unbelievers, uh, who had only externally allied themselves with Christ. Jesus will crush their rebellion. The rest of the dead will be raised uh, for judgment. And finally, he will establish a new heaven and a new earth. So, preserves the literal millennium, was prevailing view of the early church. Um, I think one of the problems I have with this is the post-millennial rapture. Like it, um, most people who hold this view um, would deny the distinction between church and Israel and would say that the rapture and the start of the millennium could ha- can happen at any time. It could start tomorrow. Uh, the problem with that is I think that kind of diminishes the seven-year tribulation, what we know about that. And then the dispensational premillennialism, very similar to um, you know, what I've been teaching you the whole time, that in our timeline,
right? You have the church age starts at the basically the Pentecost, which is closer to the cross. There'll be a seven-year tribulation. The rapture will happen here, and then Jesus will come back here, reign for a thousand years with Satan, uh, basically cordoned off. And this is going to be a time where all the promises given to the nation of Israel are going to come to fruition. Uh, there's a lot of passages in the Old Testament that talk about a new golden age. Um, like in Zechariah, talked about how all of the nations will pay homage to Israel and those who don't will be punished, right? Now, the fact that they will be punished shows that this would not be when everything's perfect and, you know, well, effortlessly not sin. But there'll be something different about this thousand-year period, okay? And so the idea is the Jews who survived the tribulation and the believers who survived the tribulation, right, they will walk into this thousand-year period, okay, as born-again believers. But their children, right, their children will not necessarily be believers. And at the end of this time, Satan will be released, There'll be a giant rebellion, and then Jesus will do the smackdown. And that's when you have what we call the Great White Throne Judgment, where all of the damned will be judged at that point. And I would say all of those who died here and here will be judged at that point. Of course, that would be a judgment of vindication, not uh, damnation. And then the Eternal City, the New Jerusalem, will come down at this point and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and we'll live happily ever after at that point yeah so i always consider the the new heaven and the new earth to be two different things but i understand that there's a view that they're the one and the same thing is can you tell me a bit about that because that's always confused me okay the new heaven and the new earth um yeah, there's a, my understanding of that is that we're going to have a, um, you know, just like when you're in heaven, we're going to be recognizable, right? Our created bodies are going to be new and improved, but Leo is still going to look like Leo. Aiden's going to look like Aiden, right? Ashton's going to look like Ashton. We're all going to look, although Ashton, you won't be wearing glasses because you'll have New eyes, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But you'll look like. Well, maybe she can wear them as a fashion statement. Maybe as a fashion statement. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Okay. Um, so, when you look at this earth, right, some people say, is this world discarded? And does God start over from scratch? But when God created the world, God created it what? Created it good, right? I think to discard it would be like you just gave up on it. I think there's going to be a resurrected universe as a way of looking at it. You know, what we have now will be glorified. And, and I'll just take it at face value that there is this giant city that the Lord is preparing. Right? Jesus said, I go prepare a place for you. And I think it's going to just, it'll land on this planet. But I think the whole universe is going to be redeemed, though. All of it will be redeemed. And so part of my, uh, you know, pet Star Trek um, 
loving nature thinks that there'll be space exploration in heaven. Because that would be, you know, kind of bringing everything under his control. But I don't know if I answered that question, but I, don't, I think it's going to be all integrated, resurrected, and new with what we already have, apart from a giant city. Yeah. So in Scripture it says that all creation groans under the weight of sin. Mm-hmm. Is the curse just limited to our planet or are other planets cursed? That is a good question. Right? So if you send um, astronauts to another planet and they're devoured by aliens, then we would know that the curse extends there because, you know, <laughs> the animal kingdom's turned against them. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine that it's a total fall. Um, I know some, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book, The Space Trilogy, where he imagines a world that there is no fall, and I think he does that for artistic purposes only. Um, but I, I would imagine that it's a total, a total fall. What's the name of that book? It's the Space Trilogy. Um, I don't know, but I mean, but it's just he's a, it's a thought experiment that he plays upon. Yeah. I don't think he's saying that there's. Right. I know the second book is called Parallel. Yeah. It just sounds interesting. Yeah. So, Will, what were we going to say? Yeah, the laws of physics, from what we observe, the universe is under the curse, but the entropy and things breaking down, supernovas, you know, there is destruction. Yeah. There is decay. Decay. Yeah. No, that's a good way of looking at it. Real quick, um, uh-huh. viewing Israel, what's happening right now over uh-huh. there, and we know that time of Jacob's trouble is coming. Uh-huh. This isn't it. We're not in the tribulation. Yep. We're not in the millennium, for sure, mm-hmm. <laughs> what we read. Yeah. Um, and this does look like a setup for that with the different nations. Read Zechariah 12 and, mm-hmm. and Revelation and Ezekiel 37 38. Mm-hmm. Um, like our time right now to be praying for Israel. Is sure. Not, like, how should we view Israel right now? That's a good as, question. As a church. Yeah, I've thought about this, and I think I've come up with this. I am pro-Jew, but not necessarily pro-Israel. And I'll explain that. I think, you know, God has a plan for the Jewish people, right? He's going to preserve the Jewish people. And he will give them the promised land when they repent. That's what the promise is ordered to. Now, I would say... Because I'm pro-Jewish people, which I think is the biblical commitment that we have, I think them having a nation state to defend themselves is a way of loving their neighbor. Do you know what I'm saying? But I'm not saying that their land right now in Israel right now is what's been promised to them. Does that make sense, Will? Go ahead. Well, um, the, the way the um, formation of Israel in one day, that fulfills mm-hmm. probable prophecy. Many pre-millennial um, they, they say that is one of the strongest keys to uh-huh. biblical prophecy and the end times and seeing what's happening. So that's how, how would you explain Yeah, that? I would say a lot of times these things happen. Like, like Hitler was a compelling Antichrist figure, wasn't he? But we know that there's many Antichrists before the Antichrist. I think a lot of times God gives us conceivable peaks into the future to remind us of these things in the future. But it wouldn't destroy my faith if Israel and I don't want this to happen, but if Israel would no longer cease to be, that would not prevent the Lord from reconstituting them in a thousand years from now and still fulfilling the same prophecies. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Sure, theoretically, but mm -hmm. Israel is existing now. Would that be like kind of like the Pharisees saying, well, you know, there could be another Messiah. This isn't the one we're expecting. It's kind of like obvious this is the nation of Israel. God uh -huh. has a plan. He's working in it, preserving them. Yeah, and I, I would go to a lot of the land promises that are given to Israel. Like, when did they get the land back? Prophetically, I think when you look at the Old Testament, the land... The return of the land is given to them when they return to their Savior. So that's one of the blessings that proceeds repentance, not necessarily precedes repentance. Yeah. So Flint Hills, does it support Israel? Or is it kind of... Well, that's where, and that's where I would say we're pro-Jew. You know, we, we believe God has a special plan for the Jews. We want to support the Jewish people. We understand that they're God's people. And we want to do whatever we can to support them in whatever. But you look at it this way, like Israel right now is a very ungodly place. Like in the Middle East, they're the one, uh, one nation state that affirms gay marriage. Many of the Jews are atheists. Um, you know, there is a hardening that has taken place. But in the future, there will be a transformation and when that happens, all the blessings that the Lord has held back from them will be given to them abundantly. I think when we, when we start saying that the nation of Israel, um, like the land given to them now, is part of that prophetic blessing, then that land promise is given to them before repentance instead of after repentance. Does that make sense? And I think when you look at kind of the the relationship between the lifting of discipline and the promise of blessing. Um, yeah. Now, personally, politically, I'm pro-Israel. But I can't say that the Bible teaches us to be pro this state of Israel. Um, during the millennium, everyone will have to be pro-Israel because that's where the king is going to live. And so that's when the blessing comes. But it is true that we want to bless the children of Abraham. And when people bless the children of Abraham, they will be blessed. Anti-Semitism is uniquely sinful for that reason. Do you know what I'm saying? So that's why I'm, I'm pro-Jew. I think we're supposed to be pro-Jew. The promises of Abraham apply to us as far as being pro-Jew, of which the largest concentration would be in Israel. But um, so I've nuanced it a bit. Does that make sense? I'm not asking you to agree with me or not. I mean, you're welcome to hold your opinion, but... Um, but that's kind of where I stand. I can't speak for the rest of the elders, but that's where I am personally on it. So that is a good question. So being pro-Jew is important. Yeah. How do you feel about the Jewish nation having nuclear weapons and anything they use them? Yeah, and I would say from a geopolitical perspective, um, I think a nation should be able to defend itself. Do you know what I'm saying? So, for geopolitical reasons, like, uh, because I love the Jewish people, I want them to be protected, I want them to thrive and flourish, but I'm not going to say that the, the Old Testament promises of having the land back and all that have been fulfilled right now. That won't be fully fulfilled until Jesus actually comes back and the nation repents. So the fulfillment of the new covenant is part of the revival, and part of the revival is the reacquisition of the land and everything. And when you look at those Old Testament passages, you see how the land being returned to them 
is part of, you know, is committed to that. But I am pro-Jewish people, and I think Jews have a right to defend themselves here in Israel or any place else. So does the, um, this idea that the land will be returned after they repent, mm -hmm. um, does this, would this align in your opinion with the concept of them currently being under a curse? Um, for having rejected Jesus as the Messiah? Yeah, the curse is mainly their hardness of heart. Mm -hmm. right? That's their major curse. But I mean, it goes to show, I mean, the Jewish people are the most hated people that have ever lived. <coughs> right? Wherever they go, people have had like a special hatred towards them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's satanically inspired. I think, you know, he's, if he can't hurt Jesus, he goes after his people. And and they're suffering without the hope of Christ and the hope of redemption. And the Jewish people are so cursed that even after the Holocaust, many of them just abandon the faith entirely, but still hold on to their Jewish heritage. Um, yeah, so I think there is, uh, and I think, you know, there is a blessing when you support the children of Abraham. So that's why I think it's, the Christian response is to be pro-Jew pro and to love the Jewish people and seek their welfare and protection in whatever form that may take, right? Okay, other questions? Well, I think we kind of ran out of time, so we'll talk about some of the implications of this next week. Let me pray. Well, Father, we come before you, and we're just grateful for the comfort that we have that in the end we will be with you. And I pray that um, that will happen sooner than later, that you will return just... Um, redeem us, bring us into heaven, and just uh, prepare us to prepare other people to tell about the end to come. Pray that the rest of this worship service will be edifying and encouraging for all who come. In Christ's name, amen.